0: What It Takes is brought to you by Google, leading the way toward a carbon-free future. By 2030, Google aims to operate on 24-7 carbon-free energy. That means completely eliminating carbon emissions from its electricity use, all day, every
1: day. Maud Texier is Google's carbon-free energy lead. We're not just going to reduce our carbon emissions but we're going to completely eliminate them in the first place. We're going to completely redraw the roadmap for companies and electricity grids to decarbonize their own operations. Achieving 24-7 carbon-free energy will require new technologies,
0: new approaches to energy purchasing, and new policies. We'll hear more from Mode about what it'll take to decarbonize Google's operations a bit later in the episode. For more information, go to g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. I'm Emily Kirsch, founder and CEO of Powerhouse. This is What It Takes, a show about the entrepreneurs making our zero-carbon future a reality. Power plants are massive, complicated pieces of machinery. Gears, pipes, boilers, generators, instruments. But a new kind of model is taking shape one that combines smartphones, software, and smart devices in homes. It's called a virtual power plant, and it's what our guest, Matt Dusterberg, is working to build every day.
2: The only pathway to get to 100% clean energy is having resources that can firm the grid.
0: Matt is the co-founder of a company called OhmConnect. It was founded in 2014 to make it easy for individuals, people like you and me, to help clean up the grid. To phase out coal and gas power plants, we need two things, a lot of clean energy and a way to smartly balance all that variable energy every hour of the day.
2: That leads to really two types of resources. One is batteries and storage, which there's been a lot of focus on. The second one that I see is kind of being more intelligent about how we use electricity and really leveraging the technologies that everyone's phone has. A lot of this is already ingrained in people's houses and let's just tap into it.
0: That second resource is at the heart of what OwnConnect does, empower individuals to adjust their own energy usage to stabilize the grid while earning money in the process. The idea hit Matt in 2006 when he was a trader buying and selling contracts to deliver electricity.
2: I was focused in New York And I would be in New York with some of my friends, and they would literally have their ACs on with the windows open. Mm -hmm. And I was like, we're earning a lot of money off you doing that. (laughs) (laughs) You shouldn't be doing that, but, you know, it's good for DC energy. There was no connection back to the individual residents. And so the idea was, let's democratize that. Instead of having a financial entity being able to participate in these markets, why couldn't you, as an individual, participate in these markets? And that's really kind of the the underlying thesis behind OmConnect,
0: And that thesis is playing out. In December 2020, OhmConnect picked up a $100 million investment from Sidewalk Infrastructure Partners. The money will help the company build a 550-megawatt virtual power plant made up of hundreds of thousands of households across California, the largest project of its kind. In 2013, Matt joined a powerhouse hackathon to start working on the idea. It's come a long way since then. So we invited him to a live conversation to hear about the sacrifices, close calls, and conflicts that he's dealt with while building Connect. Matt's story started well before the hackathon with his parents who were both entrepreneurs. You describe yourself as both being introverted and extroverted and spent a lot of your time in your early years reading books. Tell me a little bit about your parents and about your upbringing.
2: My parents were entrepreneurs as well. They started a company called Business Software House, which is a totally original name, but they were basically (laughs) in the business of doing software and they were working out of their house. And some of that entrepreneurship rubbed off on me. Um, I remember, well, I actually don't remember it. It was a story that's been related to me a number of times. When I was six or seven, apparently I woke up one Saturday morning at like 7 a.m. and wheeled out like a folding table to the front yard and set up basically a carnival game where people could shoot darts and pay me a dollar to shoot 10 darts at different targets that I set up. And so that was my first foray into entrepreneurship.
0: Love it. Um, so yeah, you mentioned your parents started this company together, but after 13 years of working together, your mom decided to leave the company to save their marriage. And she started a retail consignment shop that you helped her build out and helped her run in high school. What did you learn about entrepreneurship from your parents?
2: That it was hard, that it is a, um, a tough, tough road ahead, but that if you're dedicated and you continue at it and you have a clear goal in mind, you can achieve it.
0: Your older brother attended University of Virginia to study chemical engineering, and you followed him there choosing the same major and graduated with a BS in chemical engineering in 2006. What was your college experience like and how did you plan to use your chemical engineering degree?
2: Chemical engineering was really, of course, I followed my brother in that direction. But at the time, there was a lot of discussion about hydrogen economy and how to get clean energy through the hydrogen economy. So I went to chemical engineering through that pathway, much to find four years later when I graduated that that was a far off idea. Now it's rearing its head again, which is great. But um, I missed that window.
0: How did you come to first care about climate? Were there any influential books or moments in your life in in high school or undergrad?
2: There's um, really two events that happened at UVA when I was there. One was a book that I read. It was Collapse by Jared Diamond and really talked about what could happen to societies, even thriving societies, that end them. A terminus Point, for example. The one kind of story that really stuck out with me was Easter Island. They were very, they were a thriving economy. They were building those stone statues that you've heard about on Easter Island. But at some point, somebody chopped down the last tree that put them in a place where they could not exist forever. And so that's, that was really scary. Uh, the second piece that really woke me up to climate change was one of my final exams as a senior. And the professor asked, can you build the energy balance? What is the entire energy portfolio of the world by 2040? And it gave us a couple of constraints like carbon and economy. And the problem was unsolvable. And at that point, every problem I had seen to date through high school, through college, you could always solve this problem, I was like, I, I literally can't solve it. It was super frustrating. I went to the professor, I was like, I don't, I don't know if this is solvable. And he was like, it's not. <laughs> and it was it was a wake-up call. I was like, we need to do something different.
0: Immediately following you graduating from University of Virginia, you went to work as an associate at DC Energy, where you were seeking to model where electricity would flow to beat the market. Uh, More specifically, you were trading electricity derivatives on recently deregulated energy markets and looking for ways to more accurately predict usage in congested areas to reduce price fluctuations. You were exposed to massive amounts of capital. You were personally trading about $30 to $40 million a year when you were just two years out of college. What did you learn from your time at DC Energy?
2: Well, it was my first real job out of college, so I didn't know how weird that was at the time. But w- what I really learned was that there was a massive amount of efficiency that could be created by these deregulated markets. We were basically pitted against incumbents that had very archaic ways of modeling the world. And uh, DC Energy came in with some sophisticated financial models, even run by a 22, 23-year-old was able to outperform kind of their models. And so it was, it was a big learning in that there was a lot of improvements that could be made by disrupting uh, the incumbents.
0: So you took that experience and decided to leave DC Energy in 2009 to earn a master's in mechanical engineering from Stanford University, which I want to note you completed your master's in just nine months for the purpose of saving money. Uh, You, which very much ties back to your parents' entrepreneurial experience and um, influence on you, you shared that you got your master's from Stanford mostly for the name, but you didn't really gain any technical value to help you be a better entrepreneur. And so I'm curious. For, you know, investors like us or for people who are hiring, what do you think we should know based on your grad school experience?
2: I think there is a, a lot of ways to look at potential candidates or ways to look at your career going forward that is beyond the name and the brand recognition of these big name schools. And that is a, a going to be a big challenge, especially for my kids' generation, when they decide where to go to school, are they going to go to those top tier universities or is there just not going to be enough room because of the globalization and, and kind of flattening of the world? And so that, that's a big question. One thing I did learn from Stanford, that said, is uh, humility. Hmm. I was able to breeze through, I think, a little bit in high school and college. But at Stanford, I just was, um, I got to a couple of classes and I just didn't know how to solve them. And, and it was really kind of eye-opening that there was people there that were like, oh, I could figure this out. And I was definitely not one of them.
0: (laughs) Coming up, Matt launches own Connect, learning valuable lessons about fundraising and facing many moments when he thought it might collapse. First, a quick word about our partners who bring you this show. What It Takes is supported by Google, leading the way to a carbon-free future. At the start of the show, you heard Maud Texier, one of the people at Google,
1: working to make 24-7 carbon-free energy a reality. Ten years ago, people thought 100% renewable energy matching was impossible. But still, we actually achieved that goal ahead of time. That's really because technology has changed so dramatically and we made all those progress over the past 10 years. And today, we are now aiming for most ambitious moonshot yet, which is to operate on clean energy at all times and everywhere.
0: In 2007, Google was the first major company to be carbon neutral. 10 years later, it matched 100% of its yearly electricity consumption with renewables. Now, Google plans to be the first company to operate on carbon-free energy around the clock in every one of its locations by
1: 2030. This means piecing together the solutions you hear about on this podcast. It's going to range from machine learning to batteries or any type of cheap, clean energy that is not invented yet. And on top of that, this innovation is going to have to happen across all the grids and really everywhere.
0: Google is eliminating carbon emissions from its own
1: operations. It's also enabling other organizations to help decarbonize the world's electricity systems. So it's really an immense undertaking that is going to require collaboration across industries and governments. We're not just trying to achieve 24-7 carbon-free energy for Google, but we're really trying to drive transformation of the grids, and we're going to try to find the right partners to really drive this transformation that is necessary today. Achieving
0: 24-7 carbon-free energy will require innovations, technologies, and partnerships across the clean tech industry. Mood and her team are already partnering with nonprofits and startups to pioneer the energy systems of the future, and the next decade holds a lot of opportunity for growth. If you want to get inspired by the challenge, or if your business can help Google get to 24-7 carbon-free energy by 2030, visit g.co forward slash carbon-free by 2030. What It Takes is also brought to you by NextTracker. NextTracker is building connected power plants of the future by integrating new solar technologies and advanced control software. NextTracker's tracking systems are future-proof, built to withstand the worst possible conditions. These trackers can withstand any terrain. NEXT Tracker also has a control system called NX Navigator. It allows plant operators to precisely track every parameter of a solar project in real time, plus schedule maintenance and command trackers during extreme weather events. This raises plant efficiency and bankability. To hear the entrepreneurial journey of NextTracker CEO Dan Sugar, go back and listen to the third episode in our back catalog, and you'll hear why they call Dan the King Midas of solar. If you want to learn more about how NextTracker is advancing the connected power plant of the future across five continents, go to nexttracker.com. After Matt's humbling grad school experience, he joined a startup called DataRaker, It's a company that analyzes smart meter data for utilities, and it was later acquired by Oracle. Matt led the analytics team to create a new way for utilities to understand and interact with their customers. He could clearly see how intelligent digital meters could transform the way the grid works. But he was frustrated. Utilities only wanted to use them to know if they were working. This frustration was the genesis of OhmConnect.
2: Yeah, DataRaker was amazing in a, in a different way than DC Energy in that I was exposed to millions of records of smart meter data. And there's so much power in that data. But the request that we had, the relationship with we had with the utilities was just to say, are these meters working or not? So it's kind of the bare bones question, like, is it on or not off? And that's all they wanted to know, the utilities. That's That's all they wanted to know. It was, on one hand, really cool to be able to uh, access and see all that data, but it was incredibly frustrating because we saw a ton of analytics you could do beyond just it binary working or not that we wanted to share, but the utilities were not ready to receive that type of information.
0: Hmm. And you were one of the first people, and DataRaker was one of the first companies in the country to have access to data from millions of people via smart meters. You were employee number 13, and in 2013, when you were about 26 years old, DataRaker was acquired by Oracle when the team was just about 30 people. As part of the acquisition, you became Oracle's very first data scientist in 2013. So first, how did Oracle not have a data scientist prior to 2013? (laughs)
2: Well, remember back in 2013, data science was just the cutting edge. we were kind of and Oracle wasn't exactly on on the cutting edge at the time. So I remember they asked, well, "What do you, would you like your job title to be?" I was like, "Oh, just a data scientist." And they were like, well, "We have to make that in our records." And I was like, "Wow, you know, this is a Silicon Valley company, cutting edge, and we're bringing data science for the first time. It was awesome to be the first one. But as you'll see, like I, I didn't stay there very long." because of that experience and some others.
0: I know the initial idea for Ohm Connect started in 2013 when you participated in Powerhouse's, uh, one of our very first hackathons, and your team won a whopping $1,000 for the idea and for some initial programming. Uh, You and your friend-turned-co-founder Curtis Tung came to the hackathon with the goal of aligning solar production with energy usage, so essentially embracing the concept that electricity should be used when the sun is shining, uh, to your previous point. How did you know or did you know that what you were building at the Powerhouse Hackathon in 2013 would become what Ohm Connect is
2: today? I think it was beyond our kind of wildest dreams. We wanted to make a difference. And we are, you know, looking back at that time, I would be so proud of what we've done. But now at this point, I want to do a lot more Mm -hmm. because you know it's just one element in kind of revolutionizing the clean energy grid. Mm. I think the biggest part of that hackathon is kind of the recognition of how much you can do in just a short amount of time. We were the quote unquote nine to fivers. We only went from nine a.m. to five p.m. Really, with an intention that we were going to be doing this for the next seven years. You know, at the time, I didn't know it was going to be seven years, but ingraining a culture of stability and sustainability with me and Kurt being able to sleep at night instead of Mm. working through the night.
0: Makes sense. Following Powerhouse Hackathon and your big win in true Silicon Valley fashion, you and your co-founder Curtis set up a shop in what was basically a broom closet of an office in San Francisco to continue to work on OwnConnect. You're now president and CTO, Kadir Lee joined about a year and a half later to help refine the idea. What made you and Curtis take the leap to Embrace Ohm Connect as what you were going to pursue full time? Like, how did you basically decide to become an entrepreneur, become a founder?
2: Both of us were very aligned in the idea that we kind of knew that there was a pathway to solve our basic needs food, water, shelter. We've both been, uh, you know, in the working world for six, seven years and amassed a significant amount of capital to say, okay, let's do exactly what we want for the world. And, and Kadir, in a lot of ways, was the same way. He was just several orders of magnitude beyond us (laughs) um, with his exit at Zynga. And we were able to say, look, we want to dedicate to the mission of getting to 100% clean energy. And, you know, that may take three years. I mean, that may take five years. And for the first two or three years at OhmConnect, we made zero revenue. So that dedication was all about the mission and the um, desire to see that through.
0: Hmm. You spent... About a year, year and a half, working out of the broom closet alongside Curtis and Kadir, and maybe one or two others, uh, experience that you described as smelly, um, before upgrading to an attic, and then I think a basement, before eventually switching to an all remote setup in June of 2019. How did you go about building and building the business in the first year? Like, how did you know how to do the foundational startup building that that you and Curtis and Kadir did?
2: We didn't know. Um, it was a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of spaghetti on the wall. I think when Kadir joined, he brought a ton of experience, so we were able to really focus in on a lot of ways. But the pathway in which in which Ohm Connect earns revenue and really um, represents users on behalf of in the marketplace. Didn't even exist. And we paved that way through our workings with the California Regulatory Commissions, through stakeholder engagements, and really spreading the word that this this is a resource that we can't leave untapped.
0: Um OMConnect has expanded well beyond its humble broom closet beginnings. Today, it has dozens of employees, and it's helped individual customers in California save thousands of dollars annually. But this business has a catch— it comes with a lot of regulatory risk. OhmConnect has to work within a very complicated set of rules, and electric utilities don't always play by those rules. Investors don't often like that kind of risk. Luckily, a few early backers believed enough in OhmConnect to take the leap. But as the company got bigger, those risks became more acute, and OhmConnect started to face conflict with utilities. It led to what Matt calls "Whiffio moments, Worth it's over. Did you get pushback from investors? I feel like so often, if anything requires regulatory approval or some big change in the regulatory environment, investors are like, uh-uh, death nail. How do you approach that?
2: When you see that regulatory pushback, there is a tremendous amount of disruption value that can happen. That's a barrier to entry, for, for example. But the initial investors did not see it that way. They were scared as much as we were. And so we got a lot of help and support from people who, frankly, believed in us and our dedication and the mission. I was actually talking to one of our first investors yesterday, and he was like, look, I put the money in because I believed you guys were doing something good. And if you didn't make it, hey, that was my shot at trying to change the world. Hmm. And a lot of the early investors saw it that way. Um, Thankfully, we're in a place where we are able to return on their investment in a healthy way.
0: Hmm. Uh, Speaking of those investors, uh, and you mentioned earlier that it took about three years from 2013 to 2016 before you were generating any revenue, but you were able to raise a million dollars from angels and other investors that rolled into a $6 million Series A at the end of 2015 when you were still pre-revenue, around the time you also received a $4 million grant from the California Energy Commission. Uh, But that seed slash Series A round included really notable investors. I want to ask you who you were talking to yesterday if you want to share, but your your early investors includes the Salesforce founder and CEO, Mark Benioff, co-founder and former CEO of Yahoo, Jerry Yang, founder of Zynga, Mark Pincus, and then former presidential candidate, Tom Steyer. How did you get these investors? That's question one. Question two is what should founders be looking for when they are raising capital? What should founders look for in investors?
2: in a lot of ways that was driven by Kadir's joining us we were able to pull in these big names but the reason we were able to pull in Kadir you know th- that might be the first question is we had built a product that was sustainable that was exactly in line with the thesis he had and how you could change the world so you you go back to the secret and every startup has this secret we were very fortunate to have had a secret that there is multiple people very you know, experienced people recognized as well. And once you see that secret embodied in somebody else, it's a natural alignment. And so once Kadir was able to come on, then he was able to bring on Mark Pincus and then several others. But to get there, you needed that first round of seed C- stage funding. So the person I was talking to is actually a DC Energy ex-colleague of mine. And he worked with me for a couple of years and just knew who I was. Mm-hmm. And I think there is this element of, if you can prove yourself in the workforce, if you are able to show that you've got sustainability behind you, Mm. um, you might be able to get investment that way.
0: Um, OmConnect is now seven years old. Looking back at those seven years from where you're sitting now, what are the biggest mistakes you've made so far and what have you learned?
2: The company itself has been very aggressive in the regulatory space, and that could be both a positive and a negative. In many ways, we've unlocked a pathway to the market that no one else had before. On the other hand, we've created a lot of enemies. And so well, who are there's, your enemies? Well, in a lot of ways incumbents. And I, I go back to the oil and gas companies knew about climate change in the 1970s and they worked to cover it up. I think there's an element that the existing energy, it's it's a trillion dollar energy industry, and people do not want that to change. They do not want young, disruptive startups to come and take a big piece of their pie. And so that created a target on our back mm. um, in a lot of ways. Mm.
0: And does that feel like, is that a mistake? Or is it just kind of the reality of the environment that you've decided to innovate in?
2: It's a little bit of a reality of of the energy space in general. You know, when you're trying to steer this trillion-dollar energy ship— You've got a lot of different influencers. And one of the, the things that the incumbents have done a very good job of is making sure that their laws are protected and the status quo is protected. And as a world, as a society, it is paramount for us, um, especially as we think about climate change, that we need to change that status quo. Hmm. And so there's almost a populist movement that needs to be behind this that says climate change is real. know. <laughs> We had administration for the past four years saying that that's not the case. And I think the voters have spoken to say, look, we we do believe in that. Now, that was one of many issues, but it is something that we all need to step up and say, I believe in this. This is important to me, and I'm passionately behind this.
0: Mm-hmm. In order to do that, I know you mentioned you have to have a sustainable business. You have to build something that can can grow and sustain on its own just about everyone we've had on what it takes has at some point in their entrepreneurial journey been within months weeks days or even hours of shutting their doors has ohm connect ever come that close and what if so what was that like
2: oh th- it's the with you moment um <laughs> the we're f- it's over
0: <laughs> i learned a new acronym thank you
2: <laughs> yeah we've had had those moments i i think the most striking one that's Really, like seared into my brain was July 24th, 2016. This was a day when uh, we saw the results of an auction that the utilities didn't follow the rules to. And I didn't know that was possible. You could just not follow rules, it was illegal. And so we worked over the next three or four months to straighten those rules out. And sure enough, we got a very positive CPUC decision that said, hey, you have to follow these rules. But I think that was a wake-up moment of that is the regulatory risk. I had heard from people it was like oh you're you've got a regulatory risk. It didn't really set sink in until that day. And mm-hmm. I, I remember going on a very long run that day. My my wife was pregnant. It was it was a dark day for for me, but we came out stronger on the other side.
0: To your point on that kind of need for humble introspection, uh, as far as your role with, with OMConnect over the past seven years, you were CEO of OMConnect from the very beginning up until September of 2019, when our mutual friend and longtime industry leader, uh, leader Cisco DeVries, joined OM Connect as CEO. Why did you transition out of being CEO, and how did that come about?
2: Well, you know Cisco, so you you probably know <laughs> out of anyone it wasn't that hard of a decision. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, for me, it was personally very, very hard. Of course. I mean, it was my baby. And to hand over the reins is a little scary. But of course, as you know, Cisco and Kadir, senior executives that I can learn a ton from makes it a really easy decision. They've helped accelerate OM Connect four or five years into the future Mm. of what I could do. Mm. And that becomes a no brainer. The way that me and Kurt, when we first founded Home Connect, had really focused on is like, if we can extend the human life for months or years by making a su- more sustainable lifestyle for the entire planet, let's do it. And I think they certainly bring it from months to years, and that becomes a really easy decision in light of everything else.
0: What advice would you give to founders who either by choice or not are bringing in a new CEO into their company?
2: That's a hard question. Um, I think the, the most important thing is really understanding what drives you personally. Not what everyone else tells you is important. It's what you actually feel is important because no matter what Um, Other people are going to tell you that it's important. If you don't actually believe it down to the bone, then there will be always friction.
0: To keep scaling the company and get through those WIFIO moments, Matt knew he had to bring in outside support. But the most crucial support came from inside his own home, from his partner, Van. When DataRaker was sold to Oracle in 2013, Matt and Van debated their options. Should they spend the money on a new home and live comfortably, or use the money to start a new venture? They had to choose one. Van pushed Matt to go all in on building a startup.
2: When DataRaker exited, me and Van weren't yet married or even engaged at that point. But we had a long discussion of like, where could we use the money from this? And was it to really settle down and have a family and buy a house? Or could we plow it really into our careers? And we opted into the latter. And Van was incredibly supportive. Own Connect would not exist if it hadn't been for her foresight to say, look, let's do what makes us happy um, as opposed to like settling down at this moment
0: on the personal front you were 32 when you had your first kid you would put the exit capital from data raker into home connect rather than buying a house so you and your wife were living in a studio apartment when you had your first child and i want to make sure i got got this right so your kids bed was some kind of storage bin, like a plastic storage bin, on a shelf in a closet. And then when you were planning on having your second kid, you told your wife you could just get another bin and put it on another shelf in the closet to stack them. And at that yeah, point, she was like, clear, time to buy a home. Is that right?
2: Yeah. If you've seen like the Japanese beds, you, they would be separate. You wanted to just stack it on top so yeah, the bottom yeah, of person course, can get out. Of course. Out. No.
0: I mean, you're not an animal. <laughs>
2: <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, my wife nixed that idea. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think we did what we could. I, you know, San Francisco is an extremely expensive city, and you know, do what you can to to make what we're doing. My my wife was also an entrepreneur, and so you know, she's starting her own company. I'm starting my own company, and that was where we focused our our expenditures basically. And you know, our kid was great and hasn't really. She, she's been able to grow into a, a bigger place. I have bigger bed, a lot more space. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bigger bed, just more space. <laughs>
0: still, still in the bin. <laughs> uh, on that personal front, you're obviously founder, CRO, a partner to your wife, a parent to your kids. How what, what, what is it like to be all of those things at once?
2: It's a challenge. And one of the things that I've learned is being present for your kids almost every day is something to really achieve. And it's a goal to be set alongside your goals of company.
0: Looking ahead, what does Ohm Connect look like in five years?
2: Yeah, we will hopefully be the largest power pr- plant provider in California, maybe a couple of other markets. And that will allow solar and wind to become the predominant energy source. Um, by pr- providing that flexible load, there's a lot that needs to get there. But there's a lot of tailwinds behind it. I I think the new administration has certainly um, seen an upshot of not only regulation, but investment and capital as we have more investors seeing the certainty that the clean energy is the future of America.
0: That's a perfect parlay into my last question before the high voltage round, which is what is the future of energy? What does that look like over the next five to 10 years?
2: Yeah, I think it should be free. Energy generally should be free or extremely cheap, but it has to be very timely. So you have to be able to use electricity when you want. Now, ideally, you have uh, solutions like Ohm's Connect that comes in and is able to manage that for you. Uh, the other big components that should come in is electrification. So, you know, moving every home to a fully electric home, no gas, and the transportation sector. Gavin Newsom's order to get all electric vehicles on the roads in California is a very important one. And we'll see more and more flexible loads being able to support your car, for example, can support your dishwasher at night or cooking at night. Um, And so that type of beautiful relationship is a very sustainable one.
0: To close with our high voltage round. So quick questions, like a couple word answers, starting with if you were going to be an animal, what animal would you be and why? Why?
2: I think it has to be something in flight, a butterfly.
0: Why? Why a butterfly? Uh,
2: Being able to go wherever you want. (laughs) Sounds good. And and smell the flowers along the way.
0: Mm, Lovely. Uh, If you had to start a new career tomorrow, what would it be?
2: Uh, In policy space.
0: Oh, what kind of role?
2: I would want to have a decision-making capability to make sure that we get to 100% clean energy. Um, reinforce what Biden has been doing.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, the administration's hiring, so, you know, putting it out there. <laughs> Other than yourself, to whom do you attribute your success?
2: My wife, Van. She's, uh, we wouldn't be here without her and her support. They're, during those with you moments, she's the one who kind of pats you on the back. It's like, you'll make it.
0: <laughs> um, when have you failed?
2: That Stanford final exam was one big failure. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, there's a lot of small failures along the way, and I think one of the keys is overcoming the small failures so you don't have a big one.
0: Mm. Uh, what's the best investment you've ever made?
2: Uh, Home Connect.
0: <laughs> uh What's something that you thought was true that you no longer believe?
2: That information is indisputable. Data is indisputable.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, when are you your best self?
2: With the family. Mm. Right now, when I was, I'm 36, so... <laughs> Uh, what's your worst trait? My worst trait, not being able to feel for people who aren't kind of in the same direction as me, and that's that's something that I need to overcome. Hmm. But I think a lot of us do as well, um, given where we are in the world mm. today.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, if you could change one thing about the world, what would it be?
2: Nineteen seventies that the oil companies woke up and said, "Hey, climate change is real. We got to probably do something about this."
0: <laughs> Love that answer. <laughs>
2: If there was just one or
0: two people who were going to hear this podcast, who would you want them to be?
2: Apple, the head of Apple, and you know, the head of Amazon—people that have a lot of money and power and can make a change to create sustainability—and hopefully they will invest.
0: Okay, yeah, call me Tim and Jeff. Um, finish these sentences for me. Companies fail because
2: lack of focus.
0: Uh, success is?
2: Changing the world.
0: If I could have done one thing differently, I would have?
2: Probably not gone to Stanford and started investing in this company a lot earlier.
0: <laughs> nice. Um, if the world knew me for one thing, it would be?
2: Hopefully, it will be creating a pathway to 100% clean energy.
0: I hope so too. I'm most proud of?
2: The kids growing up in this crazy world of pretty much all COVID um, and, you know, facing it with a big smile and masking up without any issues.
0: Mm. You sent me the most adorable video of your kids running on top of the bubble foam that our mic was the mic you're holding now we sent to you and it was wrapped in some bubble wrap and you put it on the floor and your kids were running, doing circles in the house on the bubble foam. And you sent me the video and it was one of the cutest things I've ever seen. So thank you.
2: Yeah. I mean, no, thank you. First of all, you (laughs) created about 30 minutes of absolute fun for them. They were just laughing the entire time. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's been great to see them really grow up. And when I was traveling pre-COVID, you know, I was in Texas almost every month. And you don't realize how much you're missing. You Mm -hmm. you kind of come back, you're like, oh, they've really grown up. Mm -hmm. But being able to see it every day Mm -hmm. is is really fun. Mm -hmm. And and something, hopefully, that our world can get around. And, like, there's a lot of in-person. I think in-person is vital in many, mm-hmm. many different situations. Um, we over-index on that right now.
0: Mm-hmm. Last uh, sentence to complete for me is to build a successful startup. What it takes is?
2: Dedication, mission, clear vision on where you want to go. And I want to thank, big thanks to Kurt and Kadir, um, that's they, you know, along with Van, of course, this is my support network. They were laser focused and their families were laser focused into a place where it was kind of the great wide unknown of a trillion dollar industry. So, um, you know, having those core mission behind us um, really overcame a lot of challenges
0: really really well said and just so grateful to know you and to have them connect in the world doing what you're doing um, and so grateful for you sharing your story with us on what it takes
2: well and thank you emily what you've built at powerhouse between the venture between um the podcast as well as kind of the company building that you've done enables companies like us we couldn't have done it without you
0: matt Dusterberg is the co-founder and chief revenue officer of Om connect Join us for new stories each month of founders who are building a carbon-free future, their upbringings, their risks, their failures, and their breakthroughs that are transforming our world. Thank you to Google for their support of the show. Find out how Google is accelerating the deployment of next-generation clean energy with its 24-7 carbon-free goal. Learn more by following the link in the show notes. What It Takes is produced by Powerhouse in partnership with PostScript Audio. Powerhouse partners with leading corporations and investors to help them lead the next century of clean technology innovation. Our fund, Powerhouse Ventures, invests in founding teams, building innovative software to rapidly transform our global energy and mobility systems. You can learn more at powerhouse.fund. That's powerhouse.fund. Our executive producer is Stephen Lacey. Our producers are Jamie Kaiser, Rye Story Fisher, and Emma McDonough. Sean Marquand mixed the episodes and composed our music. I'm Emily Kirsch. This is What It Takes.